Welcome to episode 59 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by FBI true crime cases. In this episode, we get to speak to former FBI profiler Jim Clemente, who served in the FBI for 22 years. Prior to joining the Bureau, Clemente was a prosecutor on the New York Child Sex Crimes Prosecution Team in the Bronx. In the FBI, his first duty assignment was on the New York Field Division's Joint FBI-New York Police Department Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force. After assignments in the Little Rock Division and the Washington Field Office, Clemente was appointed as a supervisory special agent in the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit in Quantico, Virginia. This interview with Jim is the appropriate follow-up to prior episodes featuring the review of the polyclass child abduction and murder case with Eddie Fryer. As a nationally recognized expert in the fields of sex crime investigations, sex offender behavior, and child pornography, Jim has investigated and consulted on thousands of cases involving serial murder, serial rape, child abductions, sex crimes, homicides, threats, bombings, and the sexual victimization of children. In his work, he has interviewed hundreds of victims and offenders. He is the host of the popular true crime podcast, Real Crime Profile, and also serves as a writer and producer for Criminal Minds, the long-running CBS FBI crime drama. Jim Clemente is also the author of the crime novel Without Consent, a fictionalized account of his personal loss of innocence at the hands of a child sex offender. I really needed to talk to Jim after reviewing what happened to Polly Class, and Jim really helps us understand what we need to do to keep our children safe from sex offenders. Before we get to that interview, I just have a couple of things that I want to let you know. The first is that we are still in the middle of March Milestones, which is my giveaway celebrating two milestones during the month of March, my 60th birthday and 500,000 or a half a million episode downloads of FBI Retired Case File Review. Thank you for listening. To commemorate these milestones, everyone who subscribes to my newsletter will be automatically entered into a drawing for a chance to win one of two Jerry Williams author of FBI crime fiction prize packages. The prize package includes a signed copy of my novel, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry a display ornament celebrating female FBI agents, a Philadelphia FBI challenge coin, a Philadelphia FBI lapel pin, an FBI retired case file review, and pay-to-play bookmarks. This contest closes at 12 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 31st, 2017. After the interview, I'll give you more details about the rules of the contest, but you can enter by going to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and that's J-E-R-R-I, williams.com. 
The next thing I wanted to mention was that the reviews keep coming in for pay to play. I got three new ones in since the last time we spoke. MLM says great read. This was a good book kept my interest and I finished in a few days. Refreshing departure from the Hollywood stories. The characters were real and believable, but still left a sense of mystery. Looking forward to Jerry's next book. If you like crime stories, add this one to your list. Deborah from New Jersey said, five stars. Love the suspense and intrigue. Well written and detailed. Look forward to her next book. And James says, great value and a great read quick-paced, exciting, and full of unexpected turns. Hard to put down and moves through the storyline with excellent characterizations and dialogue. A great book to take along on vacation. So I want to thank MLM, Deborah from New Jersey, and James for reading and reviewing Pay to Play. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping me to continue to produce ad-free content on a weekly basis. Plus, as you can tell from the great reviews, Pay to Play is a good read. So keep the reviews, tweets, posts, and emails coming. I love hearing about how the interviews with retired agents inspire, encourage, and educate you about the FBI. Thank you. Now here's the show. I want to introduce my guest, Jim Clemente. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Jerry? I'm doing great. You know how sometimes things just seem to come together, like the stars align. I guess they call it uh, synchronicity. Yeah, um, yeah, I do. Sometimes what? you get lucky. Yeah, and that's what happened in this situation because I have been following you and, and your podcast, uh, Real Crime Profile, since the very beginning because I actually started my podcast the week before, and we have a mutual friend. Jim Fitzgerald, a fellow That's former right. profiler, and you know he let me know that you were launching your podcast. So I've been following your podcast, you know, as a best practices, you know, how the professionals do it. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my home office doing my podcast. Um, well, you're doing a great well. job. Doing well. I, I, I occasionally am on the top charts on iTunes, but under art and literature because oh. I try to focus on true crime and books and crime awesome. fiction. The synchronicity part of this is I reached out to you in, in the last couple of weeks, and it's at the same time that I had just completed interviewing Eddie Fryer, who was the case agent of the Polly class abduction and murder wow. case. Yes. Wow, that was a tragic case. A tragic case, and it has been... I have to admit, you know, I present myself as a very tough, um, you know, former retired FBI agent, and I, I think I am tough. <laughs> yeah. But this case was so disturbing to me. You're an expert. You know, you've specialized in child sex crimes. So I think it's a perfect time to have you on so you can help relieve some of my fears and the fears that I have set out there to my listeners. So thank yeah. you so much. No problem. And 
just so you know, I mean, in the behavioral analysis unit where Jim Fitzgerald and I both worked for over a decade together, uh, we we did a major study on child abductions and child abduction homicides in the U.S. So we have a lot of figures to uh, talk about and uh, statistics, and I think it'll really help people understand what the nature and extent of the problem is. Well, this is perfect. I have a, a friend of mine who is a a regular listener of the podcast, and Manny was the one who really brought this to the forefront for, for me. He's got very small children, and after listening to the poly class uh, episode, he called me, and you know, he was just saying, just the thought of somebody coming into your home and snatching your children out of their bedroom is just unbelievable. But you really have more information about that and also about what we really should be worried about. So let's get started. Yeah, sure. Um, well, if you want me to leap right into it. Yeah, um, please do. The statistics are that in the United States of America, uh, we have somewhere around 350 million people, and there are somewhere in the area of 160 to 200 child abductions a year, non-familial stranger abductions. Um, and that's a, a big number. Um, obviously, it's horrible for every single family that's related to those children, but it is not a very common event. It's a very rare event, and there are certain things you can do, obviously, to protect your children and to make them aware of the risks and so forth. But there's a far greater risk to children in the United States of America and around the world, and that is nice guy or gal, acquaintance offenders, people they know, people we know and love and trust that we hand our children over to because we know them and trust them. They are the by by far, by, by by multiples of hundreds, more common threat to children. In other words, children are molested by people they know 95 to 97% of the time. Strangers make up a very small, minute percentage of the sexual victimization of children across this country and around this world. So I think it's really important for people to put that into perspective. And we can talk about this and also discuss how parents can protect their children from, from this kind of a threat. Now, are these two different types of subjects, somebody who would snatch a child, uh, sexually assault them and kill them, and then the nice guy who is their coach who molests them, are these two different type of personalities? Absolutely. First of all, um, only about 50%, half of the child abduction cases are sexually motivated. Um, there's a number of child abduction cases that have nothing to do with sexual desires. Um, so that's the first difference. The other child abduction motives are, are financial, you know, when there's a, a kidnapping for ransom, or what happens more these days, what's more common is sort of, you know, a drug deal gone bad or a gang incident gone bad and, and a child is taken to sort of enforce that uh, situation or as as revenge for that situation. There's also emotional motivations that are, I mean, how can I put this, basically 
when a non-biological father figure is in a situation where a mother has a child and the father figure wants to basically get access to the mother and the child is in the way all the time, sometimes they get rid of the child. Or if there's some kind of competition between a uh, parental figure, uh, typically non-biological, and and they they basically, because they can, because kids are easy to control and manipulate, they can try to take them out of the, the equation. There's also a factor called maternal desire. And this motivation is typically seen in situations where there is a mother figure who either just lost a child, wants to have a child and can't have a child, wants to keep a you know paramour by saying that she's pregnant by him but needs to produce a child eventually, and they abduct a child to fill that maternal desire. And what ends up happening is they don't kill the child. They want to keep the child forever and ever. Um, unfortunately, children are very sort of indistinguishable when they're very young. So when they show up with a child, many times uh, nobody is the wiser. Nobody understands that they stole this child, they abducted this child. But the good news is that that type of child abduction since we did this study, and uh, the study ended in 2000, um, since we did this study, we actually got this information out to all the hospitals in the United States of America, and they increased the security around neonatal units so that we've almost been able to wipe out that type of crime completely. And the only times it has happened since then has been in very poor rural areas where they didn't institute these kinds of procedures. And I think in Puerto Rico it happened as well. But the downside of that, Terry, is that a new crime kind of emerged from that. And it's a very horrific and unfortunate crime. There have been at least five cases that I recall in which a parent or would-be parent, um, a woman who wanted a child, uh, befriended a woman who was pregnant, either by pretending that she was pregnant as well and going to classes with her or some other way, and then right before she was to give birth, killed the mother and stole the baby, a cesarean yeah. abduction. Yeah, I've that, definitely heard about those. Yeah, and so that was that's because this desire is so strong, this this need to want to have this baby that they've actually cut the baby out of the woman, and it's you know a horrific crime. But but anyway, those are basically the motivations behind uh, child abductions. Now, if we focus on the sexual motiv sexually motivated child abductions, which is does make up the biggest part of child abductions. Which was the case in the poly class uh, yes. abduction. Right. What happens in that case, the people who do that are the ones that don't have the skills and ability and access to children so that they can groom them. Um, we'll get into the grooming in a little bit, but the fact is that once a child is abducted, all the alarms go off. 
everybody is looking. You know, there are Amber Alerts now. Every police department in the country realizes that there are exigencies here, that this has to be addressed right away. Because one of the things that we discovered in our study about child abductions in the United States is that of the children who are abducted and killed, 44% are killed within the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, 99% in the first 24 hours. So you can't sit around and wait to try to determine, well, is this really a missing kid or is this kid run away or is this kid abducted? You have to react immediately, otherwise that child's life is in danger. Now, not every one of the children who are abducted by strangers gets killed, so let me make that clear. Many of them don't get killed, and I believe the statistic was at the time that about 67% um, were actually killed, so two-thirds were killed and one-third survived. So, Fortunately, I have had a few cases where um, the kids did survive. We helped rescue these kids. And other cases, the offender just let them go. So it's not always a fatal event. Um, 33% do survive. And so that is a statistic that should put hope in the hearts of any parents whose kid gets abducted. But it is also very incredibly important to report it immediately and get the police involved immediately and the FBI involved immediately. There are five regional child abduction rapid deployment teams in the United States and the Gabriel Analysis Unit, where Jim Fitzgerald and I work, has a, uh, an attachment to that those teams and we've trained those teams in how to do child abduction investigations and how to coordinate with local law enforcement and get all the information out. We also coordinate with National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and they help with services and flyers and, and help to organize search teams and so forth. So there are assets in place across the country so that that any child abduction can be responded to immediately and there isn't any lag time which will increase the risk to the child. And local police departments know about this resource? Yes, and there is a child abduction uh, response plan that the Behavioral Analysis Unit has put together and handed out for free, and they can get free copies for all their law enforcement officers, and they have, not only do they have a DVD which goes through it, but a, a book and then a little pocket booklet that tells you what you should do immediately upon the report, what you should do within the first hour, what you do, should do in the first six hours, 12 hours, and, and so on, so that you make sure you cover all your bases. And the most important thing for local law enforcement to know is that if a child abduction happens, it's already too late to create a plan. You have to have a plan in place so that you can execute it immediately upon the report of a child abduction. And so anybody who wants that information can reach out to the FBI or reach out to the Behavioral Analysis Unit at the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, uh, Critical Incident Response Group, uh, and that's in, they, they operate out of the FBI Academy. So um, if anybody needs that information, uh, they can contact me and I could get it to them. When it comes to the killing of a child, is that 
part of the desire, or is that just trying to get rid of the evidence? I think you have to understand that that these offenders are not pigeonholed easily. I think there there's a spectrum of behavior and a spectrum of reasons why they do what they do. So with respect to some offenders, they are, and that would be the sadistic offenders, they are doing it, they get a pleasure out of causing pain and suffering. Um, very rare type of offender. So first of all, you have a child abduction offender, which is a rare offender, and of those, you have a sadistic type, which is a very rare offender. So uh, that's not a common uh, incident. But when you have a guy who says, you know, I've taken this child, they, they're impulsive, they, they're not thinking all the way through, they take advantage of a situation, they see a child vulnerable, they take the child, and then all of a sudden they're left with a witness. And some of them panic and do kill the child. Um, it is not um, their main goal or desire, but they just don't know what to do, and that's why they kill the child. And that's why one of the, one of the things that we do is have the parents do a media strategy or somebody close to the family where they humanize the excuse me. That's why what we do is hold a media uh, press conference so that the parents can execute a media strategy which humanizes the child, and that is basically makes the child a human being to that person and will reduce the risk of death to that child. Let me ask you one last question about this, and I think we've made the point, and I'm so glad that you did, that this is all rare, but I have to ask you about the J.C. Dugard type of situation where you know, the child is abducted. You know, you don't find a body. The child's been missing, and then all of a sudden you find out that she was a captive and, and, and mm-hmm. has now returned. And, of course, we have the situation in Cleveland, and then we have the situation in uh, Utah. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Smart. Yes, Elizabeth Smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those cases. A little cases. bit about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of those cases are examples of another motivation, and that is to keep the child, to possess that child. Um, there are other offenders as well that, that aren't as well-known who have done the same thing. And A, it's a good thing because the child does not get killed, but B, it's a bad thing because obviously this captivity goes on and and any victimization goes on for long term. And I think that when you look at the uh, the intensity of the type of crime that we're talking about, I mean, it is incredibly serious. But it is also a shining light of hope because in all those cases you just mentioned, the victims were rescued. And they went on to live. They had an opportunity to put their lives back together. In some of those cases, they've had children, and they're taking care of those kids, and they're moving on with their lives. As difficult as it may be, it's certainly a benefit with respect to that child, you know, being able to grow up and have a life of their own. And so although they are also extremely rare, um, and they're horrific crimes. They're horrific crimes of a different nature. And I think that 
the the good thing is that it does sort of add a, a little spark of hope for the parents whose children have just been missing and they just don't know what happened with, to their child. That they could still be alive and there may be a day when they will be reunited with them. Very good. All right, so I do want to be responsible, and you've said this a number of times, that these type of cases, these monster predator type cases are rare. So what is it that parents really should be looking out for? Well, the fact is that um, monster predator is a term that evokes in us this, this image of somebody who is scary and and, you know, offensive and somebody you would naturally want to stay away from. But that is, again, a very extremely rare circumstance. That there are actually many, many, many more offenders who are nice guys, nice gals, pillars of the community, people you know and trust and love. And these are people, some of which have just an innate, sexual desire for children. And so there's actually a spectrum of offenders. On one end of that spectrum is situational offenders. On the other end of that spectrum is preferential offenders. The situational offenders don't necessarily have a sexual attraction to children. But if children are available, vulnerable, and desirable, they can... Take advantage of them. They basically will look at a child as an opportunity to have sex, and they can manipulate the child and basically do what they want, take advantage. Those people do not necessarily actually have a sexual attraction to children. But on the other side of the spectrum, the preferential offenders, they have a definitive sexual attraction to children. Now, it may be exclusive. In other words, it may be the only sexual attraction they have, or it could be non-exclusive. They could be sexually attracted to adults and children at the same time. They could be in a marriage with children of their own and still have a sexual attraction to children. And that's why it's important for parents to understand that even if, you know, if your kid wants to have a sleepover at, you know, their friend. Sally or Bobby's house, even if their father or their mother, for that matter, is married with their own children, that doesn't mean that they can't also have a sexual attraction to children. And I would be incredibly suspicious of anybody who wants to spend more time with your child than you do. In other words, you know, kids are great, but they can, you know, get on your nerves because they're all about kid things. And adults want to have, spend time with adults because there's a mental interaction there that's missing with children. And so that's one of the red flags that you can look for. If there's a, an adult, married or not, who wants to spend time with kids more than you would want to spend time with kids, then that should be something that you know perks your ears up a little bit. So these offenders uh, who are preferential... Um, whether they're exclusively sexually attracted to kids or not, they literally have have the same exact kind of sexual attraction that we have, but it's aimed at children. And they are turned on by the fact 
that they are children. And that can be age-specific. In other words, they can be attracted to children of a certain age group, a certain body type, a certain personality type, a certain hair color type, or any combination of the above. And But if they have that particular sexual attraction, it may not be exclusive. So if a child who doesn't fit in that desirability category is available, they may take advantage of that child too just because the child is available. So I've had cases in which, for example, uh, a child was abducted by an offender. Um, the guy who reported the child missing or last seen uh, happened to be a, a registered child sex offender, but the police didn't look at him because he had offended against a six, uh, excuse me, a nine and 11-year-old girl and this was a four-year-old boy who was missing. So they didn't think that that was an issue. But, in fact, there's a study in Great Britain that was done that in which it said the findings were that when the person who last reports seeing a child who goes missing is a registered sex offender, that 85% of those cases, that person actually abducted and killed that child. Wow, so 85%? Yes. So if you have a case in which a registered sex offender is either last reported seen with the child or last or reports they last saw the child, um, that is somebody you should look at very, very closely because the chances are that person was involved in the abduction of that child. So um, so anyway, there there are a lot of nuances in in how you distinguish these offenders. And, of course, that's the sort of the, the science and the behavioral analysis part of of this kind of inquiry. You, you have to look at what the situation is. If somebody is sexually attracted to children, typically they spend a lot of time, effort, and energy getting access, authority, and control over kids for sex. And the smart ones, the ones who have personality, the ones who are intelligent, the ones who have impulse control, will do it through grooming. Grooming is a process, uh, a set of behaviors that give a person, an adult, access, authority, and control over a child so that they can get the child alone and have an opportunity to sexually victimize the child. Many times, grooming is not only aimed at the child, but it's aimed at the parents and guardians of those children and the community in general. I think All right, Jerry so you're going to have to explain that. Yeah, you're yeah. going to have to explain that. Mm-hmm. I think Jerry Sandusky is a perfect example of it. For example, Jerry Sandusky, when he became an assistant coach at, at uh, Penn State, um, also started a charity and started out as a group home for kids for kids who were underprivileged, and it grew into uh, an organization called The Second Mile that actually helped hundreds of thousands of kids over the course of the 30 years that he worked there. And these, this organization w- turned out to be his access point to children. It gave him standing in the community as a pillar of the community, somebody who everybody looked up to. He was so helpful. He helped these kids. He volunteered his time. He fostered 24 children. He adopted six kids, five of them boys, one of them a girl. 
um, he specifically stated publicly that he adopted the girl for his wife, who he called Sarge, by the way, um, that he adopted the girl for his wife, which would then leave you to believe that he was implying that he adopted all the boys for himself. And he would have them sleep in the basement. His wife wasn't really permitted to come down in the basement. And that's where a lot of sexual victimization happened. Um, but the, the, the case with Sandusky was that he had put himself out there and proven, and I have that in quote, air quotes, proven to the community that he was such a great guy that nobody who knew him ever suspected that there was anything wrong, that he was ever doing anything to these kids. Even so, after there was a, a report in in 1998 that by one of the parents that he had, had taken a shower with this kid and that he had, you know, been sort of horsing around with the kid in the shower, and the mother was freaked out, understandably, by that. But when the investigation happened and the psychologist who who evaluated the case and Sandusky came back and said. There's absolutely no sexual intent here. This was not a sex crime at all. And then the DA dropped the case and the detectives dropped the case. Everybody thought, see, yeah, you thought that behavior was bad because you don't know who he is because they were the victims of grooming themselves, the people that were close uh, to them. Yeah, because that's and, ridiculous. A grown man taking a shower with a child who is not related to him. Well, I would say Absolutely. However, I would say that in in the sports uh, arena, it happens. And in YMCA's, it happens. Now, they don't necessarily just walk into a shower with a child, but adults and kids do. There, You know, many of these sports places, you know, and gyms have gang showers. And, you know, guys just walk in, and whatever age you are, you're in the same shower. So it does happen across the United States. But horsing around with a kid in the shower, horsing around with any kid, even if he's your kid, in a public shower. That's that's way out right. of line. So there has to be rules that govern that kind of stuff to protect children. But what can protect your children more is if they know that there is a danger out there, not some stranger danger, because that is an extremely rare thing. Yes, you can tell them about it, not going off with strangers and so on and so forth. But it is a far less common danger than the danger presented by somebody that they know and trust and love. But how do how do you do that? How do you warn a kid about somebody that they know and trust, that you know and trust, but just want to make sure that they keep in mind, you know, that you know, that whole thing about, you know, private areas and uh, how do you how do you do that? Without securing your kids. Well, let me let me pose you a situation, okay? Can you imagine a world in which we protect children from the perils of crossing a busy street by not telling them that it's dangerous? I mean, would you ever think that that's safer than doing what we do, which is walk up to the street corner, show them how you push the, the button to make sure that you, the light is good that you can cross you look both ways you only go when no traffic is there and you you're going to hold their hand as you walk back and forth for the first 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 times until they know how to do it themselves right isn't that how we do it 
Absolutely. Let's take, let's take the dangers of being sexually victimized by somebody you know, love, and trust. We try to protect our children from sexual victimization by, by making them naive about sex at all. We don't talk to kids about sex, and therefore they don't know. And they get the information now, especially with the Internet. They, they have smartphones. They have uh, iPads. They have all sorts of ways to get access to, to information off the Internet and from each other. And if your kid isn't getting it off the Internet, their friends probably are. And they have Snapchat and all these other ways to get access to information and share information with each other. They are learning about it, but if, our, if the parents don't actually talk to them about it and, more importantly, allow the children the ability to talk to them, it has to be a back-and-forth conversation. If they don't feel comfortable talking, if they don't feel comfortable talking to their parents about sex, if something like this happens to them, they won't tell, they won't disclose, and, that, and right, that's Jim. the worst thing. Okay, so you need to tell us what we're supposed to say. Okay. I mean, make it, well, make, make it easy for us. I'll try. It's obviously, it has to be age appropriate, but you can, okay. talk, you can start talking to your children about sex the minute they're born. The, the earlier you start, the less of a mountain you have to get over to talk to bring up the subject. If you are open with them about it, from infancy, then you will not have to worry about ever broaching the subject and feeling uncomfortable about it. The biggest thing is that we give our kids these nonverbals that sex is not something we talk about. If parents are talking about something sexual, they do it away from their kids. If it comes on the TV or the radio, they change the station. They tell them not to go on websites about it. We, from this, children get this nonverbal that I'm not supposed to talk about this to my parents. They're not, it's not appropriate. So if you can, you have to, you have to overcome that, that internal um, fear of talking to them, approaching the subject with them. Otherwise they'll pick up on that and then they won't be able to talk to you about it. So that's the first thing. Talk to them as soon as you possibly can. There's no age that's inappropriate, but you do it in a, loving, supporting, kind way. And when you talk, for example, about the fact that, you know, these there, there are certain parts of your body that are private, and this is something that we only do. Mommy or daddy does this to clean you, you know, to teach you how to clean, and then once you get to a certain age, you're going to clean yourself and so on and so forth, and sometimes doctors will do that, but I will be there with you. If, you, if a doctor ever has to examine you, there's no reason why you shouldn't be in that room because there have been major cases across this country with pediatricians who sexually victimize kids. So there are very few incidences in in life experience where another adult has to be alone with your child. And your your job as a parent is to, one, educate your child that that's the case so that they understand that and don't have to go and be alone with another adult. And two, that they can talk to you about it if that happens or if something sexual happens to them. But you were going to say this, something. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about watching 60 Minutes. I think it was last Sunday. Um, it was recently about the uh, women's uh, Olympic gymnastic team and the mm -hmm. doctor that had been caring for them for years. And mm -hmm. all of these girls had been sexually assaulted and right. didn't know it. 
that was just amazing and frightening. And obviously, that conversation, because I, I, I know I talk to my kids about sex. I know. I just tell them about what you should do and shouldn't do and when you should do right. it. But going that extra step and saying, and if, you know, somebody touches you here, you need to let me know, even if it feels right. good. Because I think right. that's something, Very you good. know, that, yes. that yeah people don't understand. It right. still shouldn't happen. And you need to, to, to tell me about it, even if they tell you right. not to tell me about it. And my kids were right. all into sports. Mm-hmm. And I think you can take it even one step further. And I think you should. And, and encourage them and have discussions with them about it. So tell me, what questions do you have about sex? What have you heard from your friends about sex? It's okay. This is a safe time. You're never going to get in trouble for this. I love you. I want to protect you. I, want, I will always be here for you. That's my job on this planet is to take care of you, and I will always do that. And this is one of the ways that I can help you, how I can take care of you, and I I can also help you take care of yourself. So by being loving and supportive and strong and not being fearful when you're talking about it, not conveying that fear, but just conveying confidence that you can actually help protect yourself by, A, knowing that this could be a threat, and you can even say, look, good people can do bad things. People that we know and trust and love, they may have something else going on in their mind. They may pretend to be this good person, but actually have some bad motives. And so if anybody does this, if if I did something, you go tell your, your mother. If she did something, you come and tell me. It, we'll all talk about it. It will all be, you know, out there. You'll never get in trouble for telling us that we did something or a teacher did something or uh, a coach did something or cousin Johnny did something or Uncle Freddie or Aunt Sally. You know, any of those things, it's okay. And you have to really talk about all those possibilities because children grow up in a land of giants. They Everybody is shack or twice as big. To them, as they're growing up, they're taught to listen to adults. They're taught to respect adults. And so when something like this happens from an adult who's known and loved and trusted, they don't know where to go. This is mommy and daddy's friends, or this is our cousin, or this is my aunt, or this is my uncle. So it's a very difficult thing. I mean, they're like... Mary Kay Letourneau was the, the, the mother of three or four children married when she started sexually victimizing a, a, her 11 or 12-year-old student. And then she gets pregnant by him. And then she has he, she goes to jail. She comes back out. She gets pregnant by him again. She goes back to jail again. This is a serious offense. And yet Barbara Walters puts her on and talks about this wonderful romance. Yeah. I mean, it's just outrageous. And then you see the boy now, a man, who talks about struggling with depression and alcoholism. And he was clearly, you know, out of it. He was not. He was. He was. He was not a normal human being. And finally, when their children reached the age at which she started having sex with him, he realized, man, I was just a little boy. I was just a child. I would never want my daughters to be exposed to that. So, you know, it's something that we sometimes don't think of women as sex offenders, but I know that there have been 
I had collected over the course of my career in the FBI over 300 cases where teachers had sexually victimized kids. But then I, I saw, I mean, female teachers, I saw a study recently where in one year it was like 780 teachers and more than half of them were female. So, you know. Wow. It, you don't hear about a, that. Yeah, they're out there. I mean, you could do the Laterno thing is supposed to be weird, you know. The Turno is supposed to be, you know, something rare, but how? Yeah, and and the thing is that there are there are a lot of those crimes are not reported. In fact, child sex crimes are very, very much underreported. A few percent actually get reported. Many, you know. Most of them will not be reported initially. So why? And 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 the average in the Catholic Church study, the average was 20 years later they were reported, and 20% were reported after 30 years. So you have to understand that because we're not talking about it as a society, and we have to start that in our own homes. If we can talk about it more openly in our homes, then we could talk about it more openly in society, and children will be much more likely to report. But the fact is, right now, it's sad because the offenders are getting away with it because kids feel they are at at fault. One of the things that grooming, I should get back to this because I think it's really important. One of the most effective ways to groom a kid is to be nice to them, pay them attention, give them respect, give them opportunities, give them gifts, give them money, give them access. But what happens is, at a certain point, they the offender will get the child to do something small that the child knows is wrong. Skip school, watch a movie they're not allowed to, tell dirty jokes, use bad words, whatever it is. They do that. They get the kid to do that and say, it's okay, you know, I'm never going to tell on you. It's okay, you can do this, you can do that. But once the kid has done something they know the parents would punish them for, they will never tell the parents what happens next. Because they're locked down. They'll never run home and say, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, I did this bad thing, and then this bad thing happened. They're afraid of getting in trouble. And they don't understand the difference in getting in trouble for using a bad word or for cutting school or something like that. The, the difference between that and being sexually victimized. They just don't get it. They, they, they can't get that into their brain, and they don't want to get in trouble. So that's another reason why they won't report it. But also, And you, and you have a word for that, don't you? Well, that compliant know, victimization. Yeah, it is yes, and it's compliant victimization. It's delayed or non-disclosure, but compliant victimization is basically when a child is groomed, they basically feel a a loyalty and a respect and and a love for the offender. Now, that that can build up over time, but I've seen cases that where grooming has happened over two, three, four, five, six, seven years before the sexual victimization happens. Maybe the offender is waiting until the child gets to that age group that they're sex, really sexually attracted to. Maybe they just have patience and want to make sure they can control the child. But I've also seen cases in which grooming happens fairly quickly, and that could be done either online through, you know, they're, they're on a website that has something to do with sex, so the child is is looking for information about sex and the offender may pose as a as a as a similar age child and as a as somebody that the child is sexually attracted to putting up pictures of of you know teenage girls or 
as if it were them, or teenage boys as if it were them, and then the child thinks, oh, okay, this girl really likes me, so the child posts a picture of them, themselves, you know, or their genitals or something, you know, and this can be something that then is used to extort them because now they've done this, they've taken a picture of themselves, they put it online. It's actually creating child pornography, by the way, which is a federal crime. Uh, even if a child does it, it's a federal crime. And the fact is that that once they do that, then, again, these offenders have gotten them locked in and they extort many times. They'll extort more pictures and more behavior and maybe meet them in person. But that's one type of access. Another type of access to grooming is just really the child loves the offender because the offender is giving them you know, things they need and attention and any child wants to grow up and be, you know, a man or a woman and they they look up to adults. You know, kids who are kids who are in grade school wanna be in high school. Kids who are in high school wanna be in college. Kids who are in college wanna be out in the business world and they're always they're always looking up to the next level. And so if an adult spends time with them and, and gives them the time of day basically they think that's amazing. And when kids reach, you know, 12, 13 years of age, their parents all of a sudden become, you know, goofy and boring and stupid. And any other adult that will pay them attention becomes like some kind of God to them in their, in their own, you know, psychology, developmental psychology at that point. And they become extremely vulnerable because, to offenders because they look up to adults so much more. So all it's a, it's a huge amount of information, but it is all manageable, and there are different resources for you to find out about it. I wrote a report on the Paterno case on the excuse me. I wrote a report on the Sandusky case, and you can get it at paterno.com. Um, and the last twelve or fourteen pages of it is a section about grooming and compliant victimization and how. In detail, you can understand what's going on there. Also, Ken Lanning wrote Child Molesters of Behavioral Analysis, and you can get that, copies of that, about a 155-page monograph about investigating these cases and the types of offenders. And all that information is available, and you can get it from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. You can download it from their website, or you can uh, have them ship you copies. So Jim, what I'll do is, is yeah, what, what I'll do for um, is to to put links to those resources on the show Great. notes for this episode. Well, and I could give you a couple more, three more links that I'd like you to to, okay. to post if you would. One is called Safe for Athletes. Safe the number four athletes dot org, and Catherine Starr started that. She was a USA Swimming uh, star, and she was victimized by a coach, and it was rampant. And so she created this organization, and on it are best practices for any organization that deals with children, from, you know, kindergarten all the way through high school, from sports teams to clubs to any groups, church groups. You can you can implement these best practices, and they have model, model um agreements that any employee or volunteer has to sign. They have reporting mechanisms. It's all free. 
And it's all very well thought out, and it's very, very, very good at, at setting up systems that will protect children, talking about it, making kids aware that they have rights, they can say no, they can report. All those things are very important. So safeforathletes.org. There's also Stop It Now, and it, it's .org. Stop It Now. And this is an organization that gives um, information to parents and victims but also, if somebody is feeling that they may offend against a child and they want to get help, they can call a hotline and get resources. Because I believe at least there are at least some offenders who could be helped by intervention and therapy by not actually being driven underground. In other words, if somebody realizes they have a problem, they may be able to avoid offending. But if they think, nobody, everybody hates me, nobody ever will help me, they may just decide to go over to the dark side and embrace offending. And I want to try to reduce that number of people if I can. And one of the ways is by referring them to a program like this. And any situational offender, I believe, can be helped with therapy. Any, any non-exclusive preferential offender somebody who has sexual attraction to adults and children. I think aversion therapy with respect to the, their sexual attraction to children could help and helping them support if therapy about their sexual attraction to adults by reinforcing that you can, you can hopefully give them an opportunity to not offend. People who are exclusively sexually attracted to children, I don't believe you will ever change their sexual attraction, but they can if they are motivated, and of course you ha you can't be in their own mind and know exactly what they're feeling. But if they are motivated to avoid offending, that kind of therapy can give them mechanisms by which they can try to avoid it. So I think it's important. And Dr. Fred Berlin out of uh, Johns Hopkins has a sex offender treatment clinic, and he's done uh, work with offenders of all types over the last several decades. And I I do believe that he genuinely wants to try to reduce the number of offenders out there who are offending. So um, that's a resource as well. The last link is malesurvivor.org. And one of the things that gets lost in, in this type of discussion many times is that boys are sexually victimized too. And there are a lot of resources. Historically, there have been a lot of resources for girls who are victimized and women who had been victimized as girls. But Male Survivor is the first international organization that actually helps boys who were victimized and men who were victimized as boys. And there's information and there's uh, forums where you can talk to other victims and, and get resources and help. Um, it's something that most, you know, when I was growing up, I had no idea that this could happen to a boy until it happened to me. And I thought I was the only one. I didn't know anything about it. And I wrote a book about it. It's called Without Consent, and it's a novelized version of my story. But I wrote it that way to protect the the identities of the other people involved. And, you know, the the cases that I was working at the time when when I went after the offender who victimized me, and so that could could I, you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think sure. that is fascinating. Um, that not only yeah. did you 
a lot of people who are in this work, I, I take it, know somebody or, or personally were affected, but you were able to find justice for yourself that so many yeah. people don't have a chance to to to, to, yeah, to well, find. It, it was it was quite uh, coincidental in a way. I mean, when I was a prosecutor in New York City, my brother called me up and said, "Hey, you know, now that you're a prosecutor, we should go after that guy." who ran the camp we were at when we were kids. And I said, why? And he goes, well, one time I snuck into his office and I found all these paperbacks filled with Polaroid pictures of him molesting boys. So the next day I went to the FBI and YPD task force, told them what happened to me and what my brother found, and they started an investigation. Eventually, I would. they found that this guy had taught and coached at 13 different Catholic schools around the New York City area and in New York um, over the course of 26 years. And almost every time there was an allegation, they confronted him, he resigned on the spot and went down the street to another school, and nobody did anything about it. Um, so I would eventually go undercover, wear wire, and meet with him and make a case against him, and we locked him up. And at the end of the case, um, he, uh, the FBI agent who had been working the case handed me an application and said, you did an amazing job. You're a prosecuting attorney. Um, we'd love to have you in the FBI. And I applied and, and got in. When I was in the academy, that agent got his OP. His name was Al McDonald, great guy. He got his OP to Boston. And... So they put me in the spot that he that opened up on the New York City uh, NYPD FBI Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force. Um, the thing about it, though, was years later when I got into the behavioral analysis unit, and I got in because I had been a former prosecutor in child sex crimes, and they were looking for somebody who had that experience. Um, when I started becoming an expert in this field and an expert witness, I knew that the thing, the right thing to do was to, in order to not have a, what would appear to be a bias, I had to disclose this to the, openly so that, so that no, you know, just like the fact when I took the stand, I had to say, yes, I'm paid by the FBI and I'm testifying for the U.S. government. Just like that, the way to cure a bias is by disclosure. So I started speaking publicly about it. And I was told by people in the FBI in my unit, people who supposedly should have known better, that I should not speak about it, that it was an embarrassment to the Bureau, and that Whoa. I could never be an expert in this field because I was victimized. And I just couldn't believe that. I ended up, I literally like ended up not listening to them, but I knew it was the right thing to do, and I could not believe that people were, you know, we're still back in the dark ages about this, that if you could, if you were victimized, you couldn't ever possibly be, you know, a, an open and, you know, unbiased professional in the field. I mean, it just blew me away. And when they, when they said, at one point, they said, you know, that they, they wanted me to do, to do some, like, um, you know, disclosure every time I, I, um, and like send a letter out to every prosecutor, every federal prosecutor in the country saying that I had been victimized as a kid. 
And I said, I have no problem with that. As soon as you make every woman who's an FBI agent disclose whether or not they've been raped in their lives, whether or not they've been sexually victimized when they were a kid, like I was. You know, as soon as you do that, I'll, I'll be happy to. And they're like, well, we can't do that. And I said, then Don't why are you down. trying to make me do it? And they said, well, you spoke about it. And I said, yeah. So I am less biased as opposed to more biased. You, you got this backwards. Anyway, so, you know, we eventually well, you know what? resolved I that. Bring that up. If you, if you don't mind telling us, when did you mm-hmm. first feel comfortable telling somebody? Did you tell oh, sure. at the time? Well, here's what happened. I was 15 at the time. I was at uh, CYO camp. And I didn't, I didn't tell my parents immediately because I was afraid. I didn't know how to say it without using bad words. And I didn't want to get in trouble, and I didn't want my mother to freak out, but I wanted my father to beat the guy with a baseball bat. But I just took it in internally. And like many other victims, I blamed myself. How could I not see this coming? How did I not know that this was what was going to happen? How did I not know that, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, why am why would he choose me? So then I went, you know, when I went, I was, this was at the very end of the summer. As soon as I went back to school, I went and told my guidance counselor, who was a priest. And he said, I absolve you from your sins. Say 10 out of fathers and 10 out of Marys and never say, speak again about this. Wow. Turns out he was molested. That priest was molesting boys in my class and other kids in the, in the school. So he's the one that sent me to that camp. So anyway, you know, so after that, I did not speak about it. I did not speak about it again until my brother called me up when I was a prosecutor 10, 10 11 years later. Did so, your brother know? When he showed, when he told you about seeing those pictures, did he know your story? No, he, no, he did not. I told him on the phone that day. And, you know, I was worried that when he started telling me that maybe something happened to him, but he was not blessed, but he had found those pictures. And, you know, it's it was it was the kind of situation where, you know, neither of us knew what to do. Neither of us had been talked to about this. Neither of us had an opportunity to talk to our parents about any of this kind of stuff. And that's why I'm so adamant about saying what we need to do is open up a dialogue back and forth with our children so they feel free to talk about this stuff. You actually can insulate them. Imagine a situation where somebody is grooming a child and the situation of authority and respect and trust and all that. And then the offender says to the child, you know, so, you know, do your parents talk to you about sex? I mean, do you want to learn about that? And, And the kid says, oh, yeah, we talk very openly about it all the time. Yeah. Well, It's hard for that offender to then say, well, let's keep this a secret. No, we don't keep those kinds of secrets in our family. So the child actually, because the offender is not going to just kick every victim. Many times, I mean, even Sandusky's case, tens of thousands of children interacted with him that he didn't molest. But there's dozens and dozens that he did. So what made the difference between those? And some of them, it may be because they did have that protective barrier because they were openly discussing issues like this with parents or guardians. And that that made them a bad victim, a bad victim choice. So, And we want all that, of our kids, we want all of our kids to be bad victim choices. 
yes, we want them to be protected in a way that will have them avoid this and also be aware because they might be able to help protect their friends. In other words, if they see a child who doesn't have these protections, who is being, you know, even in class, teachers will do this. And in front of parents sometimes, they'll, they'll you know, hug a kid or tussle their hair or pat them on the butt in front of parents. You know, good job on that baseball, you know, you know that hit you made or that basket you made. Great way to go. And it desensitizes the child to touch. And it's done in front of a parent or guardian or the public. And that's a tacit approval of that kind of behavior. And then when they're in private, they take it to the next step. Like Jerry Sandusky would put his hand on the boy's leg while he was driving him in the car. And then he would eventually move it up and up and up. And if the kid pushed it off, he would wait and put it back until the kid didn't push it off anymore. But if that kid went home and said, you know what? so weird like when he drives me around in his convertible which i think is great which is awesome and i feel like a million dollars when i'm in it he puts his hand on my leg isn't that weird or it makes me feel weird you know or if every every sunday night or every tuesday night parents sit down with their children and say okay we're going to talk about what's going on and about our bodies and about what's going on at school and are there any bullies or are there any teachers that are you know giving you trouble or there's things you like and love and things that you don't like, you know, let's talk about it every week and make it a practice. And then one day it comes out that, you know, what I, I don't like when he puts his hand on my leg or up my shorts. Well, well now, you know, now the disclosure has been made, even though they may not have been victimized yet, they're being groomed and you can put a stop to it. I, I got to say something though. And I think all the other listeners are probably thinking the same thing. You know, my my child has a teacher or uh, a coach that we really like, the child really likes, and the coach comes around and he puts his arm around my child and says, great job. I feel good about that. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel good about the relationship. Am I supposed to say, hey, don't hug my child? We we like to show affection. I mean, how, how, where do we put the, the, the blockade? Where do we say... You know, uh, your arm around my child after a, a good game is good. When does right. it become bad, and, and how do we express that? I think the 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 best way for the best resource for that is say for athletes, um, they talk about you know physical contact, and you can like you know uh, there's a major difference between a high five and patting a kid on the butt. You know, and you can set rules and boundaries and you can do them personally if your team or school or organization doesn't do them for you. The fact is that you can empower your child that, yes, it's it's good for, you know, your your family to hug you and so forth. But unfortunately, because of the situation, because I'm talking about. The, the estimates are somewhere, are something like 300 to 350,000 kids a year are molested in the United States of America. A year. One in four, the stats are one in four kids will be molested before they're 18. Boys and girls. Now the stats always have been one in six boys and one in four girls. But in fact, the reporting for boys is even lower than for girls. So, but but they've done studies, longitudinal studies, uh, you know, and when they, of adults, about when they were kids, and the numbers are 
one in four. So the fact is, you have a 25% risk of your child being molested. Is it worth it to you to prevent that by being the parent who says, look, in our before my child signs up to be on this team or, you know, swim here or, you know, or be in this organization, I want to make sure there are rules. And these are the rules for my family. I will protect my child. My child deserves protection. And say it right in front of your child so that there is no question. Just, you know, a high five is great. A handshake is wonderful. There's no need for something else. Jim, we are out of time now. I want to give you the, the last word to say about uh, this particular topic, about your career. What would you like to say? I would like to say that parents can empower children to help protect themselves, and we can protect our children better if we're just open about the risk. It doesn't have to be in a scary way, just a supportive, loving, comforting, protective way. Talk to your kids and make sure, even more importantly, that they feel free to talk to you. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Jim Clemente, links to FBI overviews about child abduction and the child abduction rapid deployment team, card, and resources to prevent and increase awareness of the sexual victimization of children. You'll also find a link to his crime novel, Without Consent, If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all of the social media share buttons. My crime recommendation for this week is an easy one. I recommend Without Consent by Jim Clemente. His fictionalized account of his own personal loss of innocence at the hands of a sex offender. The story's about Tony Dante, a young New York prosecutor who takes on a disturbing case with a link to his troubled past, a dark secret he's hiding that may destroy his hard-earned reputation and his perfect conviction rate. To tackle the toughest case of his life, he has to first conquer his greatest fears. This story is moving, emotional, and thrilling and a courageous way for Jim to tell his story while protecting the identity and privacy of others involved. You can find the book at Amazon.com. And while you're picking up a copy of Without Consent, don't forget to check out my crime novel, Pay to Play. One last thing before you go, let me tell you a little bit more about that March milestone giveaway that I'm featuring this month. You'll have a chance to win a signed copy of Pay to Play my crime novel. Along with that will be a display ornament celebrating female FBI agents, a Philadelphia FBI challenge coin, a Philadelphia FBI lapel pin, FBI retired case file review, and pay-to-play bookmarks. As you can see, there's a theme to this female FBI agent assigned in the Philadelphia division, which is, of course, my story. And I want to make sure you know that the display ornament, the challenge coin, and the lapel pin, you can't get this FBI stuff anywhere but from an FBI agent. And lucky for you, you know one. The contest closes at 12 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 31st, 2017. And the rules are 
simple. Anyone who signs up or has already signed up for my monthly newsletter will be automatically entered. I'm going to pick two winners. I have two prize packages. The winner will be announced in the April newsletter. One entry per subscriber, you're automatically entered. It's open worldwide. All entrants must be 18 or older. The winner will be drawn at random and there is no cash alternative. The newsletter is sent out once a month. In it, I make it easy for you to review episode show notes, photos, crime recommendations, links to FBI books written by FBI agents featured on the podcast. And I provide updates on the FBI in books, TV, and movies, and my own author journey. So I invite you to subscribe to my monthly newsletter. And I also invite you to review FBI Retired Case File Review on iTunes. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again soon for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.